Welcome to the Samuel Andreev podcast. My guest today is the distinguished Canadian writer, musician, and well, multi multifaceted artist, Gary Barwin. It's a particular pleasure to get to speak with Gary today. He's someone actually whose work I've known for a very long time. We met ages ago in the Toronto experimental writing community in the late 90s, probably actually around 1997, which uh, is amazing to, to think about. I remember first coming across your work, Gary, in the book The Mud Game that you published with Stuart Ross. I think, what was that, 1997 or 98 that that came out? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Back in the mists of, of time, yeah. Uh, before rec tr recorded history, yes. And I late late, late in the late in the um, um, late in the nineteen hundreds. <laughs> right, right. Okay, no, no, that's right. I saw that on Twitter recently. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Uh, there was a, a I think a teacher who <laughs> who had a, a student who said something like, um, "I want I want to include this in my research paper, but it's it's from the late nineteen hundreds." <laughs> <laughs> um, I got I got reacquainted with your work, Gary, when Yiddish for Pirates came out, and I read that, and I really enjoyed it. I thought that was a wonderful novel, uh, hugely enjoyable book that I, I definitely recommend to anyone listening to this podcast. And we reconnected again over Twitter about a week ago after I posted the the speech that I gave at the Arc Forum in London. And uh, Gary responded to that and also sent me a link to a speech that he had given at Sheridan College in Canada on November 4th, 2023. And interestingly, there were actually quite a lot of points in common between our two speeches. So I thought that that would be an interesting basis for a podcast, po podcast discussion. So Gary, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with a quotation from your keynote, and then maybe we can take it from there. Absolutely. So, Okay, okay, so, so you write, late-stage capitalism has been loosed upon the world, and with it, the replacement of the category of citizen with that of consumer. It feels like we're losing our agency. We've allowed corporations to control what we think of as reality, to control our desires. Social media works on even the neurochemicals of our happiness. There's an increasing economic separation between rich and poor, between the global north and the global south, between the haves and the should-haves. Churchill once said that democracy was the worst form of government except for all the others. Now we are seeing the erosion of meaningful democracies, seeing the places where power actually resides. Everywhere we see war and suffering. We're just on the other side of a global pandemic. What even is job security or a livable wage? And the climate crisis is worsening quickly. Fires, floods, mass extinction, refugees. Okay, so you, you go on in this talk to to describe what you believe to be the role of artists. And that's where I'd like to start this, because it's definitely true that the, the, the well, social media and, and the media in general are heavily biased in favor of the worst possible news that it's possible to report upon. And there's a lot of young people who truly despair, I think, about the future of the world. So what can artists do? What's our role? Um, yeah, it is really a good question. I mean, and I, um, the speech was, I was wrote the speech in, um, because I knew that many at, at Sheridan College will be many young students in addition to, um, writers in general. I mean, I, th I think that the main thing is to continue to claim our, our agency and our humanity and not allow sort of the flattening of, um, capitalism, which, as I was saying, is we will become consumers rather than citizens, um, 
and we become consumers rather than the kind of richly dynamic, three-dimensional um, human beings um, and all that means um, and sort of substitute um, the sort of quick thrills of certain kinds of interactions online, but also of of buying and of, I guess, not looking within to find the resources and not looking towards um, our innate creativity, which is, I think, one of the things that defines humans. Um, there's a great quote by Ursula Le Guin, something to the effect of, I can imagine living without opposable thumbs, but I can't imagine living without my imagination. And I think imagination um, is the key way to be in the world, to understand the world, and to have a sense of um, have a sense of agency, feeling that um, um, all of these things that happen, you can imagine ways of dealing with them. You can imagine alternatives. You can imagine, if not so, um, perhaps solutions, perhaps ways of creating community, of creating consolation, of creating hope, of creating creating a life, basically, and not allowing. Um, that to be flattened. So I think that artists, um, it, uh, I mean, that's what artists do, which is, which is create um, engaging um, acts of imagination that remind us fundamentally, whatever else they do, of the imagination, of the, of the well, dimensionality of being human, I think. Just the fact of art itself is, Im implies um, dimensionality implies the value of engaging in a deeply human way, regardless of the kind of work it is, just the fact of it, let alone whatever else it does within the work. I think what you're, what you're talking about, well, it has to do with community fundamentally. You used the word a minute ago. Um, yes. <clears throat> don't we need to redefine what constitutes community in 2023, given the fact that, I mean, if, if I, if I take my own work as a, as, as an example, as an anecdote, I'm aware of mm -hmm. the fact that if I have a piece that's performed in a concert, there might be 100, 200 people at the concert. But if I put it on the internet, the number of people that will hear it that way through the intermediary of, of electronics uh, is going to be vastly bigger. And so this community, I, I wonder what that means now. Is, is community someone on the other end of a, of a laptop around the world who I'm never going to meet? Is that a form of community? Or do you still need to have this physically communal experience where you're actually sitting together in a room. And what what would you make of the fact that for, for many musicians, certainly, recordings are vastly outweighing the possibilities of, of getting people together in a concert hall? You know, that it, um, I think it depends on, I think, there, I think they can be different things. Um, I think that it all comes down to, um, the ritual uh, rituals of connection and so uh, so we gather in a room it is it's it's always different gathering with other people right there with and um uh, in that kind of an audience and the actual acoustic difference of actual sound washing over your actual body in real time and also i think key to that experience is knowing that um you can't pause for a second and go get a sandwich um you can go to get a sandwich, but you're going to miss what's happening. There's, there's a notion of um, uniqueness of the moment. And so that moment is happening in that one moment in time and space. That's not, um, it's not reduced. Uh, you can't replicate it. You can't pause it. It has to go. And so there's something, there's something special about that, that that's a kind of a ritual. However, there's also, I think, the other kind of ritual um, 
of knowing that there are others like you listening through a recording who have um, are engaging with that recording, who are listening online, um, who have come together through the mediation, like not gathered around the fire, but gathered around a virtual fire um, in maybe in a virtual cave that are connecting um, with, you know, as a community um, mediated through whatever, you know, whatever the um, particular medium is. Uh, and that has that's another kind of a thing that it ha it's um i think it's a legitimate community that is that is meaningful and has its own as i said own its own rituals and own sense of belonging you can find your people as it were you know the 11 people that might like my avant-garde piece of poetry i can find them in the entire world and they can have a sense of being together in that in that you know uh a little uh, chamber music concert of the internet. They they they're there listening, knowing that there's somebody in Finland and somebody in Kenya and somebody in Indonesia listening. So there's there is something about that commonality, and that's another kind of community. I mean, you know the phrase that's chosen community. In a way, it can be a chosen community, just like choosing to go to a concert. It's a chosen community of people that you're engaging with online. The other thing I would say, speaking back to your first question, is that that kind of engagement at using um, um, what can just be commercialized uh, um, agents of hysteria sometimes, like Twitter, um, to use it for art is, uh, for me, is really is, is, um, deliciously subversive. It's like, oh, because my, my feed mostly isn't filled with all of the hateful kind of online stuff or extremist stuff. There's some of that. Mostly it's filled with this community that I've assembled of writers and musicians and artists who are filling my feed with, well, their dimensional humanity, as I was saying, with, with, with an invitation to community and which I feel that I'm, then I'm part of and I have these interactions because it's also two-way. I, I mean, a recording it's not quite this, like a, if I buy a CD, it's not quite this two-way um, experience, perhaps as, a, as a, a live concert where I can respond and, and the performer can see me. Not exactly. However, um, online, it is much more so. And I would say the advantage to me of online also is further that if I do listen to the recording, I then can actually reach out to the person and actually engage in conversation and building a community with other listeners, but also with that performer, like I have access to maybe not Taylor Swift doesn't answer my emails, but, um, but other, other performers, like if I wrote, if I hear a performance you did, I can respond just like the occasion of this conversation. I heard a, a talk you gave online. And so I reached out and we began a conversation again. Um, and that's to me. So that is, um, I mean, that is one thing about being a, um, well, I said citizen as opposed to, as opposed to, um, consumer but it's about being a being about a person online and about finding ways to enrich uh your your sense of of being in the world through through these enriched engagements similarly as a as a an artist sending my work out there finding so it finds its people the i find my people but the work finds its you know people who are interested and then i'm able to engage in that um in that conversation with a with a whole range of people in way in ways that I wouldn't have been able to, um, I mean I think of that anecdote about Bach. I forget where he went to see um, he went to see Buxtehude, 
Um, he travelled for, you know, he had to travel for months, had to get time off. Like, that was a major ordeal. Now he could just go to, well, bookstahooter.com or something, but he could find Books to <laughs> on Twitter yeah. and, you know, and kind of begin that engagement. And so it's, um, um, I, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about the possibilities Although I would say with the proviso that, like with everything, to kind of check the implicit sort of systemic issues that are with the various media that maybe privilege short attention or certain other kinds of attention or certain kinds of distraction that can can lead you away from those kinds of interactions that you that you that you want. Well, let's let's talk about that for a second because it's certainly true that a lot of these platforms. <clears throat> I mean, they're all sort of in a, in a Darwinian sense. They're all they're all geared towards making the user stay on the platform for as long as possible and engage with as much content as possible in that time. That that's kind of yes. That that that's the way they function. So there's there's a there's a built-in incentive to make it so that you sort of <laughs> you you read thousands and thousands of tweets and you stay there and and of course if 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 you're responding to a negative stimulus, then you're much likelier to spend longer on the platform. I mean, this is this is well documented. Yes. So on the one hand, I mean, the, the basic thrust of, of the speech I gave in London was that, in a sense, this is the best time that there has ever been in history to be an artist in the sense of the, the control that individual artists have over the, the dissemination of their work, their, their capacity to reach a, a global audience instantaneously, the ever-decreasing cost of technology also, uh, the fact that there's basically no barrier to publication whatsoever for the vast majority of people in the world at this point. But then, yes, as you mentioned, there's also this double-edged sword. Um, now, I wonder what is going to happen with this short attention span uh, issue, because TikTok seems to have compressed it down to the smallest possible point. I don't see how you can go too much beyond that in terms of short form content with videos that are, you know, 10 to 15 well, but seconds. You can go, but you can always go shallower. Come on. Right. <laughs> like, you know, that's true. That's true. I mean, I actually, I think that I think that's kind of I mean, that's sort of what I I think I was referring to, which and, and that would I agree with all of the points you just made in your speech, except that um, what happens is is because because of the nature of the media, like kind of rage baiting, where you want to like it's about quick surface responses that are high in emotion. I think, um, and that can be, and 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 that can be like junk food can be consumed like they're they're full of like whatever the emotional equivalents of fat and sugar are um, that make you want to uh, make you interested in quantity. So you want to scroll through, you want to keep going, you want to scroll through. They don't want you to, um, which would still uh, want you to listen to, um, you know, like a Mahler symphony online, Be even though that even if you listen to the whole thing, which would keep you online for a long time, or a Bruckner symphony or a Morton Feldman quartet for six hours, um, they don't want that. They want you to scroll through um, I guess because of the possibility of advertising, I'm, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure, but but there's this particular kind of attention that is being cultivated, um, and that to me, um, and that's something that trains us to engage it with things in a certain way, which can be antithetical to what we want with um, a real sense of um, being in the moment and a real sense of deep attention that much art. Um, asks of us or or invites us to in, uh and invites us to engage um in that manner so um that and also just because of 
because of um, that, there's also um, there's also the issue of quantity. So it is though it is an amazing time, as you said, to be able to be an artist. There's so there's so much content that it can feel like um, like you, whatever you do is is a drop of water in 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 an ocean, and not and not to not that. It's a sense of feeling important, but if you you want to be able to enter, if you want to enter the discourse, if you want to have a conversation, if you're doing it in a crowd that's all, you know, speaking water, saying watermelon, watermelon, really loudly, you know, will 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 your work um, be able to be noticed in all of that hub, you know, hubbub? I guess that um, that's something that makes me wonder. And additionally, um, like a financial model, because it's because it can be content providers, as it were, were are not, um, it, um, there's, 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 there are a dime a dozen, as it, or there are, there are a, a million a click, or whatever the idiom should be. Um, so that also concerns me in terms of the ability to, to value artists and for them to have a, a proper place on the internet. Um, so, I mean, I just... It's always a question, I think, regardless of what time, of finding a, um, at least in the modern world, of find finding a way to engage with one's society as an artist. I think, um, and so this just provides a different set of, like maybe you had to deal with the um, uh, the Elector of Saxony, or you had to deal with you know the the the, the Pope in terms of being able to write the music you want to write. Um, you know, you had to get permission. You had to write obsequious prologues to your book um, in order to be able to be an artist in whatever time period. So he, now we just have another set of concerns, perhaps, that we need to inventively navigate around, I guess. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. It's it's always been an important question in art as to, well, who's paying for it and in what circumstances, because it, it really does matter. As you mentioned, <clears throat> historically, Certainly, in terms of musical composition, it was the European nobility that paid for things, that that commissioned yeah. composers and and provided them with the means to to have their works be performed. Uh, and then in the in the post-war era, it became well in the interwar period, it became largely a matter of private patronage, particularly in, in North America. Um, and then we switched to a, a state-funded model that, that's very widespread in in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. That's been the case for about 50, 60 years now, where uh, bodies like the Canada Council for the Arts or the different ministries of culture in France, Italy, Germany, etc., uh, directly support not only artistic institutions but also artists. And now that model seems to be, if not at an end, at least on very shaky ground, I would say, in quite a lot of places. So a, a lot of people, including myself, would prophesy that the next model is going to be a return to private patronage, but on a on a more of a, a micro level, let's say, where you potentially have a very large number of, or whatever, or a modest number, depending on on what your reach is, but you you have a large number of individual people providing a much smaller amount of money, and that can aggregate. So then, that of course brings up another issue, which is that if if you are paid for by a private sponsor or uh, the nobility or whatever it is, then you don't so much need to be concerned about scaling your production. But if you're working on a Patreon model, or if you're living off of ad revenue, then you cannot just glibly say, well, you know, 
statistics and how many people are watching and the click the click rate and all of that that, that doesn't matter uh, i'm an artist no it does matter because you won't be able to scale your activity and you won't be able to afford to keep doing it so it'll be interesting to see how that transforms the cultural landscape because if you if you want to make a living as an artist in the in this new digital space then you have to be able to scale it so what do you make of that yeah i mean as you were describing kind of the various ways that um artists survived historically with uh, through patrons uh, uh nobility and such i was also thinking of the uh, the, the artists who who didn't do that so like the folk musicians for example all of the all of the ranges of, of people that were existing outside of that system um including brought people who made broadsides and would go to hangings or whatever and have their broadsides of um now that was limited in terms of the the kind of work that they had to do maybe this is maybe this is analogous to some of the twitter thing you if you're going to publish your broadside ba um ballad it had to be salacious quickly quickly engaged with and um you know there was a certain kind of there's a certain kind of work it um it, it wasn't a 500 page meditation on you know um on the classics so so it was or if you're a fiddler it has to be music that will be captivating say for dancing or something but i do think that there's ways of um there have always historically been ways of cultivating um community maybe smaller localized communities um now those those localized communities can be i think networked over over the world in this you know finding that community of people who are interested in that particular thing it may not have the scale um, so that become it does become an economic model as to how how does one sustain um, how does one sustain that um, and that it, I'm not I'm not certain but in terms of finding audience and finding an authentic audience uh, one that um, meaningfully engages in the work that you that you create I think of um, uh, I, it's kind of quality of engagement rather than quantity perhaps um, you know with the um you know limited number of people that might engage with something i post online compared to some of the you know tiktok phenomenons that have millions of people for doing something often fairly inane or fairly simple i mean it may be happily engage you know engaging for two seconds and a lot of people are ha want to be happily engaged for those two seconds or whatever um but there's something that quality, and so to find a, a like a smaller localized community of people who are, um, who are interested in that um, economically, um, I guess part of it is a developing, um, not like, um, the, I think the the uh, quant, uh, not only about scaling it up in terms of numbers, but in terms of like like um, people who are in it for longer, I guess, who are part of that community for longer, who who want to continue to sustain, say, Canadian poetry or, you know, um, experimental music or whatever it is that they would just that they would be in for longer and and contribute to that community in a in a longer way. I'm not really sure how that adds up um, directly in terms of um paying the bills um but um some there's something about that that is possible because of the of the more significant engagement i think it'll be it would be less um fickle perhaps well in a sense i think i think you're the perfect perfect person to talk to about this because you've been involved in 
<clears throat> very different scales, let's say, of, of engagement or, or artistic production over the course of your career. So you've written a very successful novel, but you've also been active as a small small press publisher, and you're also yes. a, you're also a composer. So um, you were involved, I believe, in the very early days of Meet the Presses, which then turned into the Toronto Small Press Book Fair, which are things that I was involved in when I was very, very yes. young. When I was a teenager, I started attending those those affairs of independent publishers. And that was, there was a kind of uh, utopian air about those experiences. And I, th I think this comes, I think, th think this connects with some of the things you were describing earlier about a, a, a maybe a smaller, but a, a very deeply engaged community. And that certainly existed, I think, in the late 1990s. I don't know what the status of it is now, now that, uh, you know, technology has totally and radically re uh, reshaped the, the poetry and, and literature landscape but um but it also has its limitations so for example the the readings that i used to attend and the and the book fairs that i used to attend also i mean very largely it was it was made up of other writers and so i think for for a culture to be robust and maybe maybe well, i'd like to know your your point of, point of view of this i think that the the reach of the work has to extend beyond the uh the producers of it and so, well, some would disagree with that, though. You know, there's lots of artists who feel that their their primary audience is actually other artists. What would you say about that? Um, okay, there's a few, there's a few things. One, I just wanted to say about follow up on the Meet the Presses. It was Meet the Presses. It became uh, the Small Press Fair, and now it's back to being Meet the Presses. And that speech I gave was at a was at a literary festival. And as part of that literary festival, we had a we had a book fair. We had a Meet the Presses book fair. So it's continuing, and with with young with um young people. So many of the students at Sheridan were involved as well as other people. I think that it is um. To, <laughs> to use to use a commercial some commercial uh, metaphors in a, in a way. It is like artisanal beer. Like there are these, you know, huge companies, Budweiser or whatever they are, that sell sell beer all across the world. You know, they sell millions of, of their product. But now there there was a resurgence of this kind of artisanal, locally produced uh, beer from a place that that people want crave the kind of individual, um, more tailored experience, more artisanal experience, as they say, which I think is the case with, say, in the case with in like these book fairs. So, yes, you can get books uh, readily available. You can download them for you on you know on your device. But people also want beautiful paper, handmade, or you know, or, or just the fact that it's local and you really only can get it in that place because that person standing behind the um, behind the table is the person who created you know, who published or wrote it. And there's that intimacy and that specialness that people, I think, are are interested in. I think it's back to the sense of, um, like, the materiality, the the kind of, it's a, it's, it's a phenomenal moment, at, you know, at, where you actually feel um, grounded in your, in yourself, in your local, in the local, in your, I mean, in, in the material, I think. Um, and I think that is part of... Um, that itself is part of a healthy culture. Um, uh, the other thing I, I was going to say is um, the other metaphor I was thinking about, because I know so much about fashion. Um, I, I, I see those uh, I see those people walking down the runways with like these completely absurd outfits, these kind of completely ridiculously impractical outlet, and in some ways supposedly 
that that um, influences what actually people wear. So I kind of see, okay, I make these very specialized kinds of um, um, concept car pieces of music sometimes or, or writing, and that somehow, in, it, it, though that's for the particular aficionados or expertise or perhaps you know other artists or, or maybe a, a smaller coterie of people who are interested in such things, I think that that's my, like make a small little ripple and it, it, can, it can affect um, the health of the culture generally. It somehow um, um, has an influence, you know, it speaks. So there's, I guess I don't feel as badly that if it doesn't speak to um, the culture at large. I mean, I don't think that work should be insular and, and unapproachable, but I do think there are some work that has its function within a small um coterie of people who really want to engage in a certain way and that I think has a larger influence um I understand the irony of me just using two capitalist examples for for as I as I was saying but just in in the sense as as some kind of a as some kind of a metaphor I will say though that something that I've been interested in is I do create avant-garde works of uh writing and music and art but also, I was interested when I wrote the novels I've written, I was interested in seeing in what way could I engage with a larger, um, the larger conversation, be part of the larger discourse. Um, so I wrote, uh, write, choosing to write a novel, which is a, a, one of those forms, which is more widely um, of greater cultural re relevance or of greater interest. Um, I chose to use techniques that would also not my my kind of goal to myself was how could i write a work that wouldn't unnecessarily um close off readership uh unless i had to unless the work really called for it but rather than my default okay i'm just going to use what maybe amounted to avant-garde mannerisms could i accomplish some of my artistic goals but kind of trying to inhabit some other structures which i also love like like plot, like character, like setting, you know, um, and also the function of art to look, look, to think of those things and think of how mainstream culture tells stories or how, and how they, you know, to look back at those kinds of works. So like in Yiddish for Pirates, I was looking at adventure tales and pirate tales and all, um, and then seeing what I could do within that. Um, in some sense, I thought of it, um, and not to trick the reader, but as an opportunity, as a kind of Trojan horse. So it, on the outside, it looked like a mainstream novel, like it had it was exciting, it had it was adventurous, it was funny. And but meanwhile, within the structure, I'm doing things that you could think of as avant-garde and exploring. Um, like for me, I was exploring some ideas about Wittgenstein's notions of language, and I was use I appropriated a lot of the. It's, it's narrated by a parrot who parrots many things, including old stories. So there's this uh, quotation. It's, it's a little bit like a pastiche of, of things folded into it, um, which is a kind which engages to me. It was engaging with kind of conceptual writing and non-creative writing and a number of avant-garde techniques. Though I will say that many pirate tales, many are famous pirate stories, borrow from each other anyway. That's part of what they do. They're, they just kind of appropriate great bits of story and they stick them in, stick them in a new story. So, um, so for me, that was, that was my, um, like thinking about how to, I guess it was a kind of hybrid sort of, there are elements that were experimental and maybe for aficionados, but it was also, 
uh, and in a really not in a not in a patronizing way. I'm not. I I really like it's it's wanting to be able to address um, other kinds of people um, in a way that maybe may, like many of my other work wouldn't be able to. Like if I poems just automatically have a more limited audience, for example, a novel doesn't. And so. Um, I mean, which was a great privilege. I ended up having these, have, literally having conversations with people on the street about the book, and they engaged in many different ways. Um, so I do think that is something that um, artists can do, which is to think of um, some of the the mainstream conventions, how you can intelligently engage with them, and what they have, what they might have in it for you. Um, admittedly, I um, like I wrote the book. But um, the publisher may not have taken it. It wasn't that like I was writing a television show that I was bound by what I was making as I was doing it. That would be more difficult. I, I wrote the thing and they were happy. They were happy with it. Um, so I was really free to explore in my own way. I wasn't limited by some of the kind of market constraints other than the ones that I had um, Im imagined or, or understood myself that I was then able, you know, that... Um, so I do think that there are many different ways and many different audiences, and I think the writer's or the artist's job is to can be to engage on many different with many different um, uh, communities of of our of listeners or of of readers, um, and I think that's and I think that's appropriate. And some people will want to focus their work is it, just relevant to a, one group. Some people can write for many different groups, and I think that. I mean, aside from as a satisfying thing to do as an artist, I think that um, it means that um, it's just an opportunity to have different kinds of discussions, I think, and have different kinds of communities that you're part of. And maybe that's to maybe that's one way to respond in terms of what a healthy artistic culture may be. It's interesting what you're saying with respect to your novel, Yiddish for Pirates, because what you're describing, I think, is an approach where the work of art is sort of like a funnel where there's a, there's an easy entrance point into it. Mm. And then as you, as you get farther into it, it, it narrows somewhat and you can get into things that are maybe more esoteric. Um, but there, there has to be a level on which the, the art is immediately seductive immediately entertaining, immediately engaging in order to draw those people into it. And in that sense, it makes me think of, for example, well, there are many, many examples from classical music, but Mozart is an interesting, an interesting character in this sense because his art yes. brings together the the most erudite savant style with the most popular style and synthesizes them. Yes, right. And so yeah. you, you have you have this incredible, particularly in the opera arias, but not only there, where there's a, a level of immediate seductiveness or immediate approachability of the work but it also richly rewards much closer attention. It has both of those levels at the same time. I yeah, no, I remember studying um, the symphonies in undergrad. And it's like, oh, they just sound very charming. I could sit, you know, I could sit in my, you know, little Viennese tea room and listen to these things very pleasant. And then you look at some of what he's doing with Sonata Forum. It's like, this stuff's cr like crazy. But but yet you wouldn't, like he's, he's, I mean, such a, such an, obviously such a virtuoso, subversive virtuoso. Um, and I think he himself, I mean, it reminds me of him, like being able to be in that society, but be deeply subversive and uh, antithetical to, to it. Um, and his music reflects that. And no, so I think that's that's possible. I mean, I would say there's a lot of a lot of Bach is like that as well. I mean, not not maybe so deliberately, but it, it it's the surface is beautiful and approachable and 
but yet their kind of level of formal invention and complication and, um, you know, it rewards the kind of deep intellectual thinking um, that would not, would be many things that are far, would be far beyond the public who would really enjoy, Absolutely. The, who really enjoys the work. Well, I, I think also there's, there is room in the musical culture right now to do this, I think, through opera, because uh, opera is mm. a medium that tends to get a much larger audience and it tends to be very narratively focused and it tends to have a spectacular dimension to it and a theatrical dimension, of course. Yes. And uh, there are lots of composers who are reaching by far their broadest audience through that medium. So, for example, the, the recently departed Kaya Saryaho uh, wrote an opera, yes. uh, her last opera, which was called Innocence. Uh, which was based on the theme of school sh school shootings and uh, extremely mm. extremely dark and and disturbing theme, uh, which she handled with extraordinary sensitivity. I thought, and the the music is is very engaging, very accessible in its way, but it's also it's not necessarily easy listening either. But that that opera had a gigantic impact, a gigantic audience, and uh, I think that's an example of a of a way that composers can. Can possibly can possibly do this for me personally uh it'd be interesting to hear your your thoughts on this i got really tired of concerts where it was other composers in the audience uh, and mm -hmm. also just the, the 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 sheer economic absurdity of spending six months to a year writing a piece that would have to be funded through an inexpensive commission and then there would have to be a very expensive process of of rehearsals and doing the concert and maybe doing a recording and all of it is enormously expensive. And then at the end of it, you have, you know, a hundred people in the audience and they're all, you know, they've got their vested interest in being there and there are other, they're sort of the fellow professionals and so on. Um, and that to me seems like an absurd model. That seems like something to, to do away with in favor of one that throws the doors wide open and that it, that, that encourages, encourages engagement on a, on a much broader level without necessarily fundamentally altering the nature of the work itself. So for example, uh, and, and there are instances where more es esoteric branches of the arts can interact with the popular in ways that are totally surprising. So uh, I mentioned Sariaho a second ago, but there's also the example of Varez who ended up having a profound impact on popular culture indirectly through mm -hmm. his influence on Frank Zappa or, yes. you know, or Stockhausen ending up on the cover of of Sergeant Pepper, you know, so yeah, yes, and, and of course the 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 one Beatles track that nobody listens to, uh, which is Revolution Nine, of course, is a, is a direct response to Stockhausen. <laughs> but there there are instances, or or Bjork actually in her album Medulla, which uh, features collaborations amongst others with Nico Muley, who's a uh, a New York based uh, composer who's a protege of Philip Glass. And so you see these these interactions often very fruitful interactions between the artistic avant-garde and, and, and sort of mass popular culture. And I think we could use a, a little bit more of that. Yeah. And I do think, you know, um, just like you might eat bread might be a staple, but you might eat Turkish delight only, you know, or some, something, you know, some, or some particular spice more less often, you know? And so I think there is, a, there is space for that. Like there are, the, there are the, um, um, or as Cookie Monster says, like it's a sometimes snack. It's something that, you know, for small, smaller number of people um, or for small, smaller number of times, as opposed to kind of um, the more, more popular things that are that you would expect to just have be, be more around. Um, you know, one thing I was thinking about when you were uh, speaking about it, because I also what I don't want is the kind of 
approachability, like accessibility, which like a patina of accessibility that kind of loses the the point of some of the work mm -hmm. and the kind of it re requiring a deep engagement and really pushing kinds of models. Because I think um, I think that's important and it's easy to forgo the real conceptual difference or the real aesthetic difference of certain kinds of work by packaging it in a way and making it um, and it loses loses that. Um, so if everything is sort of like I remember when I used to drive to grad school, there were these ads for whiskey light. It's like, OK, if you can have whiskey, what do you mean whiskey light? Just, like, just don't have that. Either, maybe that's beer, but just right. don't have don't have like just don't have don't have the whiskey. Like I only have it like 10 percent of the time because it doesn't make any sense to make it light if it's like it's similarly, you know, certain kind, you know, like Weber and light. Like what would that yeah, right, mean? Right. You know, right. 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 Um, <laughs> but how <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I'm kind of curious now. Now I really want to think about what that what that might mean. Um, um, but, you know, one thing I was thinking as you were speaking was um, in Canada recently, there's been um, a real um, flourishing of indigenous um, writing. Um, many of the um, best-selling books have been, um, and so I'm talking in a main, mainstream way, that the fact that they were, they're best-selling, um, winning prizes and best-selling. But many of them, um, quite a few are not this way, but many are using quite experimental techniques. Um, and I find it really interesting. So these are writers that have um, absorbed conceptual writing, have absorbed um, um, a whole range of um, avant-garde techniques from um, from the time. But because um, they're using them to express um, their, or they're coming from an indigenous um, um uh, positionality, and they're talking about they're they're, they're they're explicitly speaking back to colonialism and colonial structures and colonial ways of thinking, and um, and in some cases expressing um, uh, the kind of uh, dislocation and brokenness that's uh, that of things that have happened to indigenous cultures, indigenous people, or celebrating this alternative, um, it becomes um, legible to to people. Because the avant-garde techniques, and so it's like, okay, I'm I'm perfectly willing to go with you to these spaces. I might not if I didn't understand kind of why you were doing it, um, but because I understand I understand the kind of um, the, the perspective you're coming from, I can go with you to these into these places. Um, you are with the with these techniques and be be willing you know be willing to. Um, uh, uh, to navigate and and to be comfortable with the things that make me dis uncomfortable or that made me bewildered, um, so I do think there's there's a so um, what I take from that is if people more deeply can understand um, why some techniques or what's going on, I mean, and I think that you know many of the avant-garde techniques they were speaking back to the dominant culture, never mind from an indigenous perspective, like the Dadaists or the Surrealists or the, you know, all of that, or uh, Schoenberg for that matter, in terms of like breaking apart um, uh, tonality, uh, like we're speaking to a, a historical moments where they were embedded in time and re not to reduce like, oh yes, this the reason the form is like this way is because of this, this, this ideology or this political perspective, it really is true that somewhat that is the case. Um, so um, I think that that's one thing that we can do, which is to um, um, kind of 
give, give a way in, give like maybe that with the Sarajevo is the same. Um, I never can say her name right because I always say Sari. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Sarajevo. <laughs> yeah. Sarahu. Yeah, sorry. I always go to, yes, I always. Um, um, uh, it's, it's, um, there's, there's, a, there's a strong, strong, compelling story or like uh, the Threnody for the victims of Hiroshima, the Penderecki thing. Um, it's using an avant-garde technique, but we understand like, I don't want to map one thing to the other, but it does allow us to engage with um, materials and forms that maybe would be, uh, um, would push people away or push the public, quote unquote, the, away. But if there's a conceptual way in, I feel that then our whole way of engaging with work can be can be broader. Um, so I don't know what that... It, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's marketing or education or or just I think it's being it's finding ways to engage people in the conversation that that brings them in in a way that it's um, starting from what they can understand and what they can relate to, and maybe a lot of music is um, um, the, there's many kinds of implicit um, concepts that we have listening to that music that maybe that. It, so it's doing something different than many other kinds of music that may, or the writing that the public thinks about. So it's disquieting, it's discomforting, it's it's bewildering, it's it's trying to put you in a different state. Perhaps it doesn't uh, it doesn't bring you back to um, music for when you were a child or sort of a kind of macaroni and cheese sort of comfort food kind of kind of thing, which is. Let me let me speak here for comfort food and macaroni and cheese and and how uh, I mean that there's a certain there is, there is that's a certain function of art absolutely which I which I love. There's also the other kind which um, um, I think is, is is worthwhile, but it's to help guide people in saying no no this isn't about this isn't about the kind of comfort this is about um, this is another kind of engagement that maybe you would be you know that maybe you. Um, explaining what the what 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 the uh what its function is or what what its hopes are you know then maybe that maybe that would also be able to bring pe people in in a different way but it might need to use different um it won't be on the, it won't be on the radio in terms of like a list of the top 10 because that's not that's that's not the right medium for it it has to be some other kind of place where um it's where it's where that kind of listening is is possible i think well, I, I'm definitely receptive to that idea. You may have seen or read the book Attack of the Difficult Poems by Charles Bernstein. Do you know that one? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. He, so Charles Bernstein makes the argument in that book that difficulty is an aesthetic value in and of itself, and that, that can be a that can be a, a goal of certain types of writing. It's, it's something that, yep. uh, that isn't, isn't meant to be easily consumed that, that, that actually jams things up or, or throws roadblocks but, at, oh, the, at the reader. Oh, hundred percent. Do you know that there's a poem I love to quote, which is by uh, the Canadian um, writer, uh, Martin Laba and a brother of Mark Laba. <clears throat> and it's, it, it's called modern poem. And it goes like this. Um, one, two, three, four, five, you idiot. <laughs> and and I love the poem because I mean because it's playing with the idea that one of the things that modern writing or modern art does is it makes you feel like you're an idiot like it makes you feel like you've somehow missed it and and you feel embarrassed about it so I I agree with Bernstein that the difficulty is part of it but the problem is that what people go to is like they feel stupid they feel shamed by yep. it many yep. times so I guess is what it, so exactly what you, um your point speaking back to what i was saying before is that 
understanding that difficulty, if it's meaningful difficulty, it's motivated and the person doesn't feel like an idiot. It's like, I'm, I'm not supposed to understand this because there's a reason why I'm not supposed to or find it difficult or find traditional understanding or, you know, irrational understanding or whatever, <clears throat> whatever the kind of um, negative capability or whatever it is. I'm not supposed to be able to paraphrase it or not supposed to be able to uh, take it in the way I would take in you know other 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 work and once they people understand that then they can feel comfortable i think and so i think that's why they're able to with i use the example of some indigenous writers because they understand that part of the point is that they're supposed to feel uncomfortable because they're talking about difficult issues of of trauma of cultural dislocation of you know all of that all of that um and of, a, and of an explicitly different way of thinking so that you know, similarly with the victims, threnody for the victims of Hiroshima, it's these difficult, jarring, upsetting sounds. Well, because it's a threnody for for um, these. So we are able to do that if we have a way in, I think. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that, that's something I've been thinking about quite a lot with respect to the, the music world, the composition world in particular, because mm -hmm. a lot of the strategies uh, that have been that have been deployed by composers over the, the last well, a century at this point, I suppose, to, let's say, expand or to transform or to renew the musical language do have certainly the effect of making the entry point much more difficult for audiences in many cases. Yes. But then there's also the fact that this is this is no longer a new aesthetic attitude by any means. I mean, this, this concept of, what would you say, having a, uh, not necessarily an antagonistic response to the audience but let's say uh you know willfully going in directions that one knows will be challenging for what for, for whatever reason yeah this, this attitude however has become so utterly generalized in the composition world uh, and some of the the strategies that have been used to do this have become so conformist in a sense that there's become a kind of institutionalization of the avant-garde that's paradoxically yeah. sort of um leveled things off and made them very homogenous and yes. that's something that for me as as a composer became increasingly clear i think as i edged into my 30s and and beyond is there's a strange paradox there where it's 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 meant to be difficult and subversive but it's like everybody's being difficult and subversive and they're doing it in the same way <laughs> and then it becomes a no I, yes i no exactly know what i mean, I mean when the idea that you, I mean, you can explore kind of complicated, formal, structural um, uh, things and sound pretty, <laughs> like mm. pretty, quote unquote, pretty in the way, like, but you're still, still the same level of a formal engagement. It just, but it just doesn't has the surface. So like that, that may be, that may be a way that you might choose to do it rather than necessarily going to the default, which is, is the kind of, you know, the standard, um, I, you know, I was thinking um, about, you know, often you hear, in a lot of more, <clears throat> in a lot of popular music, you hear an introduction that's that's kind of kind of noisy and kind of it doesn't conform to any of the norms of popular music. There's just there's sounds and there's like it sounds like an avant-garde piece and with the knowledge and so you listen to it and the knowledge that it's going to lead into the song is going to start after a minute or two, right? Uh, usually it's the most interest for me it's the most interesting part is that that sort of there's all these noises and sounds and it's like this not it's not you know and it's and then and then the song starts so but just that so this thinking back to there are ways that people can engage with a range of things if they if they can orient themselves i think 
Um, but I do think that, yes, we, we, I think culture often, um, wears its, um, the fact that it's, it's, it's kind of hieratic and arcane. I mean, as part of this kind of ritual, uh, um, brotherhood, sisterhood of, of, of the cognoscenti, I think there is an element of that. Um, and so that we, def we, um, we default to that because we're interested in, I mean, we're interested in exploring, you know, certain kinds of issues, but there are, maybe there are other ways, especially when those are posited in relationship to the mainstream so that they're supposed to be subvert. So, but as you said, there are maybe you, instead you can go another direction and explore. Um, I mean, which I think for instance, the minimalists did, that was part of the idea that they, to say we can explore radically different ways of engaging with music. Um, maybe within a tonal or within a modal form or with that, or, or, you know, not, not in the Webern Schoenberg, um, Stockhausen or Boulez route, we can go, we can go a different route, um, but still be as formally, um, inventive. And that certainly is, has, you know, uh, been a fruitful, um, mode of exploration. I just heard a really cool version of, um, Terry Riley's In Sea, um, and I wish I could remember uh, the name. I think it was the uh, Louth Music Society from Ireland. And what they did was they took in C, but they they had all traditional Irish musicians playing it. And it was so fascinating, along with with along with um, so Ellen Pipes and with some of the decorations. But it transformed the piece into this beautiful alternative Irish. Um, like it wasn't Irish folk music because it was still in C and it still preceded the way that. You know, it, it was exactly the piece in C, this, you know, kind of radical minimalist piece that that does this, um, uh, has a different particular way of unfolding with very restricted material. But yet the surface of it was something else. And it was so exciting because it was very beautiful and very um, evocative of the whole tradition of, of it was like a kaleidoscope on Irish traditional music. But its deep structure was this other piece and it transformed it. And so I was been really thinking about that. It's like there's an example of a radically different surface that is that speaks to culture in all sorts of really interesting ways. Um, for instance, music that's derived from folk music, but used in an used in a, uh, you know as an experimental avant-garde way. Music that's from Ireland, speaking to you know traditions that are outside of out of Europe, and all of these things. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I just like in what way can we? Can we rethink some of some you know some of those elements and what possibilities in of engagement of discussion of cultural relevance perhaps um, is possible you know um, and I I do I do wonder like I don't need to have it you know for um, I don't know basset horn uh, French horn and viola I could have a piece for that or I could maybe write it for something else and like some for I don't know like electric guitar, mambira, and, um, you know, drum set. Maybe I would be able to, um, you know, speak, enter into different conversations. Yeah, I absolutely. I, I think that one thing that artists have tended to do is to always seek new fertile ground wherever it is, and they'll tend not to go mm -hmm. to the places that are, that are, what would you say, that are, that are already heavily populated. So for example, yes, yes. Um, so for example, it, if uh, well, if if you look at the development of painting throughout the late nineteenth century and beyond, the advent of photography made it so that artists uh, 
well explored completely different things that it was no longer yes. it was no longer the exclusive province of painters to be able to make highly realistic portraits of people photography could then do that and so you you see the emergence of all of these other styles partly in reaction to that uh, there's a also a remark from adorno who said something along the lines that uh well, he, he often commented upon the fact that you had this the emergence of this this cultural industry, this vast cultural industry, and also uh, the sort of mass commercialized uh, culture uh, throughout the early part of the 20th century and beyond that that artists then reacted to because that was something that they didn't want to do. So you see the emergence of an art that is much more esoteric and much more difficult and much less accessible and 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 that resists that kind of commercialization yeah. of, of art so in other words this is i suppose the the argument i'm making is that a, a lot of artists will, will will instinctively go to the place that is not yet fertile ground um and perhaps what will happen now with the you know the, the availability of everything and with the advent of of ai and all of these technologies that are reshaping everything is artists will have to find a place where they can do work that is that is new that is exciting to them and that is not merely replicating what's happening out in the landscape and they'll have to right. find a way what like what what can they do that that ai can't do what what can they do that that can't be uh absorbed in in 10 seconds on tiktok i also think and what and how can they use ai in ways for which it wasn't designed to do all to sort of subvert the tools which is i think always a function of um, artists, right? Like, okay, the, the, society, the society is all around us with these tools and with these ex expectations. How can we, well, subvert, examine, or, um, interrogate the assumptions, you know, and, and speak back to the to um, uh, conceptual and, and technological power, I think, is what we, what one a part of our function. Um, you know, I was thinking also um, that one of the things that I think that, Maybe this is always this way, but it's something that I think for the modern artist that to think about your work is about your process. Like it's the way you engage with materials rather than necessarily like a brand, a sound particularly. I mean, it may end up be that, it may, may be that as well, but that sense of it's the way that you think about things and, and think through materials and processes that is your quote unquote voice as opposed to a a style or a sound perhaps and that to me means that you can operate on many different in many different places with many different tools and that you can then use that that kind of that, that kind of interrog that uh, you're an interrogation machine in terms of an examination thought uh um you can use that in for in, in, for anything anything that comes if ai comes in or a different form of ai that can do different things you can you can examine that you can go back and write something for hurdy-gurdy you can write something for electric guitar that or or whatever uh, those are musical examples but you know for what what whatever that it's it's that nature of engagement that really defines you as a as a creative artist rather than um a particular style so you can recognize all oh, that sound you know like the way maybe you can hear a piece of Philip Glass and go, yeah, that's Philip Glass. Or you can read a piece of um, writing and say, oh, yeah, that's um, Salman Rushdie or something. You can tell. Um, right. There's a there's a there's a there's a sort of thumbprint that's absolutely unique. It's it's the case with Stravinsky when you look at his different stylistic transformations. Yes. Yes. It doesn't, yes, it doesn't matter. It, does, it doesn't matter if he's writing a twelve tone piece or or a piece of of uh, of Russian folklore and inspired music or or a neoclassical piece it's it's always right. it's it's always him down to the smallest details in the music 
And likewise, if you take a painter like Cézanne or maybe Monet is another example, these endless paintings of haystacks or of, of still lifes of apples, bowls of fruit and so on. It's never about the, it's never about the stupid apples and the stupid bowl. You know, it's, it's like, it's about the, the handling of the paint. It's about the, the, the particular way of making a mark on the canvas. It's the, it's the attitude, the, the handling of the, of the materials that, that matters. And the, the subject matter is a, is a pretext. It's a, it's a, a basic prerequisite for making the thing, but it's not the point of the thing itself. No, absolutely. So, I mean, so some people will choose to, you know, write about apples for their career, but they're continuing to do different things with the apples or, you know, further their examination. Um, Samuel Beckett's a writer who has pretty much wrote about the same thing, um, but yet constantly subjected it to formal um, and formal um, investigation and kind of thematic intensification throughout his, his uh, throughout his career. Um, or some people do many, many different things. Uh, like Björk, you said, you gave an example, like her work is like, she does a million different kinds of things, but the, like the surface is different, but it, similarly consistent in sense of investigation that same as, um, as uh, Beckett or somebody. Um, you know, or Philip Glass, we use an example, right? I mean, his his stuff um, beyond the very early stuff pretty much sounds quite self-similar, but yet he's, you know, engaging, using using some of his tools in different ways to con accomplish different goals, mm -hmm. I think. Most definitely. Well, what I'll suggest, uh, Gary, is I'll, I'll, I'll close this off with another quotation from your uh, keynote speech at Sheridan College, which is from Albert Camus, uh, which I really like. And um, I think this is a, well, this is a hopeful quote in a way, but it's it's also one that I think that uh, that really centers things on on the on the artist and and on their role and and the importance that they can have also. So um, this is your quotation uh, from Camus: "The purpose of a writer is to keep civilization from destroying itself. Each generation doubtless feels called upon to reform the world. Mine knows that it will not reform it, but its task is perhaps even greater. It consists in preventing the world from destroying itself." And I think that's a that's a very important thing to to tell people, particularly young people, because I often have a sense that artists today have kind of left the stage in a way. You know, we're not that we're not present in the in the mainstream. We're not present uh, in terms of really lifting the levers of our culture in the way that might have been the case in the not so distant past. And I think there's lots of room today for artists to do bold and grandiose things and to save be, save civilization right say, yes well yes and and with and, and we can say that without irony i think it's actually no yeah absolutely we're true. not just content producers filling the thing we are actually without being pretentious we genuinely are i mean we are what is civilization right mm -hmm. artists yes. as part of our uh, the richness of what it is to be a human yes most definitely so Thank you for that. Thank you for your words uh, and also for, for the conversation today. I really enjoyed it. Where can people find you and your work online? Um, I have, I, I keep turning off my little dings from my, my social media. Maybe that's, maybe, maybe that's just to, in, indicative of what, what we're talking about. How connected. Look at my community uh, uh, pinging around me. Um, I, my, I'm available at uh, GaryBarwin.com and online at, at GaryBarwin. I mean, on social media at GaryBarwin. 
I'm constantly posting things and you can find links to things. I'll put links to those websites and uh, anything else on the, uh, the description of this podcast. So thank you again, Gary. No, no, thank you very much. This has been really great.